0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Grow Wire podcast. I'm your host, Fritz Nelson, and I'm joined by Kendall Fisher, the producer and host of the Grow Wire show. Hello, everyone. Hello, Kendall. Now, on this episode, we headed to New York to meet with Heidi Weldusky. She's the associate publisher and general manager of marketing and brand at AdAge. We want to have this conversation in an era where media as an industry and as a business is being challenged and is changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. Heidi and I talk about some of these changes and whether they're actually dramatic or not and what they mean for the future of publishing.
1: You know this super well, too, Fritz, because you I mean, you're publishing now, technically, but you came from a, a background in publishing. You saw the changes firsthand.
0: I did. And I think they're dramatic. Yeah. Um. And Heidi actually came from the agency world as well, so she has a lot of different um, viewpoints on the world of of media. We talk about omni-channel media distribution, some of the most innovative approaches across these channels, and the biggest challenges that she sees publishers facing right now. And finally, Waldusky drives into some of the lessons she's learned throughout her years in media and publishing as well as inside into AdAge's own growth and transformation over the years including what the company's doing right and what other businesses can learn from that all that coming up next
1: you're listening to the GrowWire podcast a place where you'll learn the ins and outs of growing a business running a business or even taking your big idea career or personal development to the next level it's all possible Our host, Fritz Nelson, the editor-in-chief of GrowWire.com, will take you on an exploration of growth through candid conversations with some of the most brilliant minds in entrepreneurship, entertainment, business development, and more. Whatever your goal, we know you'll walk away with the right tools to help fuel your journey of
2: growth.
0: Before we get into this episode with Heidi Waldusky from AdAge, we want to thank our sponsors over at Blue Mics. Everyone has a story to tell. And if you're a storyteller, you probably know Blue Mics for their iconic Yeti microphone, which has helped millions of people find and amplify their voices. If you're thinking about creating your own podcast, recording voiceovers, gaming, reading audiobooks, or whatever you think you might want to do with your voice, then you need to check out Blue's new YetiCaster, the complete mic and boom arm system ready to connect to your laptop, bringing the ultimate broadcast studio setup to your home or office. That's what we use here at the Grow Wire Santa Monica Studios, and we really do enjoy recording with them. To get your hands on one of these setups, visit bluedesigns.com and use code PODCAST at checkout for a special price. We also want to make sure you head over to our website, growwire.com. That is G-R-O-W-W-I-R-E.com. Did I spell that right? You spelled that right. Thank you. For more stories, tips, tools, and insights on the current state of media, publishing, and advertising, among other topics, for example, we recently wrote an article with eight steps to improve your content strategy, thanks to the Motley Fool's SEO lead. We even have a crash course on social media for executives and a podcast discussing the future of performance marketing. That's ready for your consumption right now on growwire.com. If you had to describe the state of publishing, both as an observer running AdAge, but also as running a publication, how would you describe it?
2: So I know the practical answer to that question is, you know, publishing is under an extraordinary amount of pressure. We talk a lot and we cover a lot within the pages of Ad Age of, you know, shrinking publications, layoffs, different things like that. Like there's no shortage of dire news about the industry. I, for one, though, on a non-practical side, am still very optimistic about it because I do believe... While publishing is a business. So as businesses are under that pressure, they are forced to become more efficient. We naturally have to shrink or um, double down on what really is core to who we are because the, the budgets are just not what they used to be, right? From a pure advertising standpoint, we're just not getting the kinds of revenue we used to see from the things that we used to do. Those who have been able to respond to that faster than others have done better. And have been able to kind of stave off that shrinking or even grow in a lot of instances. But I think what has been sort of really nice to watch is a resurgence of need for deep information. I think audiences still love to read. They want to know things. They want to be informed. And so I think a lot of what we've seen in the industry and I've been heartened by is... I still want to know what's going on, and I want to be able to trust the people who are giving it to me. And I'm so I'm very optimistic about publishing in that sense. Um, I won't pretend like it's not hard. But I do believe the people who are in it are committed to making it better. I believe audiences are pushing us for more. And I don't think that's a bad thing.
0: Has it caused or has it allowed new brands to arise? Or has it made existing brands reinvent themselves, or both?
2: Both. I think if you look at historical media brands who are really just changing the way that they're doing things, there's so many interesting things going on out there. I mean, even, you know, the story broke today about the Atlantic's redesign. You know, you can call it just a redesign, but it really is a revisitation to who they are and what do they want to be moving forward. I think it's also pave the way for new media brands to come up. So even if you look at something like Cheddar, which was acquired by um, Altice, I believe, earlier this year or last year, who is a pure like digital news outlet. You know, they were even sort of on those gas station TVs. And again, it really is what is what is there's there's a hole for information here and I'm going to fill it. And brands are being or media brands are being built on the business of. Filling that hole as efficiently and as interestingly as possible. Sometimes they're really powered by new technologies coming out that the older legacy media brands just don't simply have. So that's been very interesting to see.
0: It's interesting to see when new brands with new ideas enter a market and what it causes the old brand. Now that mm-hmm. was one company doing that, right? Um, but I, you know, I've run media brands before myself, and I remember, you know, when when we were still printing magazines and running advertising mm-hmm. as our only revenue stream. And then these kind of upstarts came in and started going down the lead generation model. And we're like, what is that? And it yeah. and it makes you question how you're doing things. And, and that can be both good and bad, right? Because if you have done something for 40 or 50 years a particular way, how do you reinvent yourself without you know, throwing everybody out and bringing all the new people in with the new ideas or just following and chasing all the new ideas.
2: I think chasing new ideas is a very interesting and exciting prospect, right? Like, oh my gosh, they're doing this thing over there, you guys. It's totally working. Let's all go do it. And I think from an industry perspective in the last five or 10 years, anytime somebody did something and we had any semblance that it was working – like all the media brands kind of rushed to do it. They were like, paywall, what's this paywall business? Let's all do the paywall. Or, oh, you're doing more video and you're making money off video? Like, oh my gosh, let's all pivot to video. And I think that now what we've seen in the last couple of years alone is like, it's less about these broad industry pivots and more about diversification of revenue that's right for you. So I'm very... I need to say that I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased to see that happen. It's exciting, actually, to see that happen because it, I think it emboldens people to develop revenue streams, on, streams of their very own. So, for example, um, New York Mag launched The Strategist, which is an entire separate, you know, wonderful revenue stream for them. Obviously, they just merged with Vox, but um, that allows them to build. Does that mean every publisher should build, you know, shopping and affiliate capabilities into their content? No. So, you know, it's not right for everybody. Or, you know, Cosmo launched a perfume. Or they've gotten to know their audience better than ever. You know, when you talk to Jessica Pells, the editor-in-chief, she is a data nerd when it comes to, like, who is she reaching? You know, does that mean, you know, every media brand should get into the business of perfumes and, you know, other things? No. Um, You know, things like Nat Geo has done where they've opened, um, they have a foundation. Um, They're really doubling down on the work that they're doing. So, I think it's been really nice to see everybody kind of taking a collective step back almost in a way and understanding these pivots aren't necessarily right for the industry as a whole. And I think some people got burned by that. I think especially in the pivot to video where people just started building studios and then you can't necessarily support that. So it's been nice to see people walking away a little bit from these larger industry wide trends and being like, okay, but what's right for me and my brand and my publication?
0: When do you think that started to happen? Because, I mean, for years it was. We're going to pivot to video. I I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And to me it was always like, that means you're in trouble, right? (laughs) Right. Because if you really thought through it and we all know how much it costs to really do video, right? A lot of cash.
2: A lot of cash. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, if you're not – if you don't have the appetite for a three to five year return on that investment, Mm then – you shouldn't be doing it. So when everybody started saying that, now you're saying that people are being – are carefully considering who they are and which thing is – which mm-hmm. of these – let's not call them pivots anymore. These are – when they stop being pivots, they become strategic moves. Right. Right. So when did – when do you think that started?
2: I mean I – I probably personally have noticed in the last couple of years, I'm sure there are people listening to this being like, in 1992, yeah. <laughs> we saw the we trend We were doing end. the web in 92. And I would love, you know, please you know, feel free to share that. I think uh, we've just seen in the last, me personally, in the last couple of years just as news comes out, it's just a nuance I have seen. I don't know if it's you know, something that we readily talk about, like, oh, we've all decided to stop doing this and doing this. I think it's just, oh, we found a little piece of success over here and it's working for our business. So we're just going to go keep doing that. I think media organizations are built built on the foundation of like, you got to be nimble. You can't, you know, today is today, but tomorrow is tomorrow and you have to move forward. And I think intrinsically we started to understand if we if we take the time and then we have to go build something, it inherently slows down who we are as an organization. So let's try something. Let's see if it works. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep investing in it. And let's keep going. So I would say for me, just noticing really over the last couple of years, um, people really just doubling down on what's working, which seems very simple, right? It seems pretty obvious. But um, I think when an industry is under so much pressure, it's not necessarily – Sometimes you think you have to do the bigger, splashier thing. Um, So it's been nice to see organizations succeed on that level.
0: I want to stay on this theme of revenue streams just because it is such a hot topic. And I think one that everyone's trying to figure out. It still kind of comes back to the basics, advertising and subscriptions, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, even if you're doing video, it's advertising Mm -hmm. on that video. If you're doing podcasts, it's advertising on those podcasts, you mentioned paywalls, subscription models. I think. What didn't the Wall Street Journal just take down their their paywall or their registration gate?
2: Maybe they did. I think paywalls worked. You know, even for ad age, when you when you put up the paywall, um, because. Nobody was hitting it. It, it lived. It existed. Um, and then we discovered a few years back. We're like, oh, no one really ever hits it. Right. So we have a very information hungry audience. And I think we had the paywall set at like, I don't know, it was like seven articles a month or something like that. Um, but a very small percentage of the audience was hitting that paywall. So. You know, in an effort to kind of convert those people to subscriptions, we upped the paywall. I think it was like you could get like two stories, right? Like we really we made it like, all right, we're it's going up, and like that's what I do. And it did an excellent job at converting all of those people in the wings who ultimately knew that ad age was worth paying for. It's a it's a business tool. It's, it's there to help you do your job better. You know, we are um, a very we take our jobs very earnestly as an industry leader. You know, so we, we 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 mean business when we cover the industry. So. It converted all of those people sort of in the wings that were meant to be converted or it wasn't that hard of a sell, right? But as you convert all of those people over, then you got to keep widening the funnel to make sure that's all built up so you have these bold, you know, groups of people waiting in the wings to be converted. But that's not necessarily always the case. That's the harder part is, okay, well, now how do I refill this funnel to get people to convert to subscriptions because like one or two stories maybe probably is enough to do it. Perhaps the Wall Street Journal realized, like, i we've converted everybody. We're going to convert. <laughs> How do we, like, reopen this and get them addicted to what we're doing and what we're delivering? Um, because it's not, you know, it's not cheap. You know, you, you're subscribing to so many different things now. Um, Even your streaming services, you know, you're going to go and you're going to look at your bill and you're going to be like, wow, I'm paying $1,000 a month um, for a variety of subscriptions. So I think you've got to get people addicted to you in some way that makes you indispensable. Um, So maybe that's what they were thinking of.
1: Which American company started with a guy in a garage, was featured on Shark Tank, and now has over 1 million customers? Hint, they're reducing crime in neighborhoods everywhere. Here's Ring Video Doorbell founder Jamie Siminoff with his secret to success. It's true. In just a few years, we've had huge growth. We've hired hundreds of people, expanded our warehouse, and we're shipping millions of units a year, all while making sure our customers are happy. I've had lots of things to worry about, but I never worry about our finance and accounting because we use NetSuite from Oracle. From the beginning, NetSuite let me see what's going on with my business in real time. From revenues to expenses, customers and orders, even HR. I run my business from a dashboard right on my phone. NetSuite has been my business management system from 10 to a team of over a thousand. And NetSuite will be my choice as we continue to innovate and grow. Go to netsuite.com slash ring to see how Jamie scaled his business. You'll also get our free guide titled Overcoming Your Five Obstacles to Growth. That's netsuite.com slash ring for your free guide and the story of a great American company. Netsuite.com slash ring.
0: I wanted to bring up one other, um, well, a few other trends, maybe they're pivots. So the newsletter business, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, you know one, like I love the morning brew mm-hmm. the the skim mm-hmm. there's there's all of these that are starting life as newsletters mm-hmm. and then maybe they get into a little bit of events and they mm-hmm. they're just spawning off new newsletters right they're not trying to become publications as much as curators of of news what do you think of that business and what are you seeing there and they are they making are companies like that making money
2: I think that they they are, I think it's easy for brands to partner with them. Um, as a consumer, I love it. As it says, <laughs> Just as a subscriber, I'm like, this is so great. They're really breaking it down for me. <laughs> as someone in publishing, you know, I can't worry too much about what the competition is doing. If I'm so busy looking at what others are doing, I can't focus on what I'm sure. doing. So I'm I'm happy for them. I do think, you know, I think the skim has done some really interesting things with the partners that they've that they've brought on, you know, they've done some good things with Chase and some other things. So my guess is, you know, they must be making money. I don't, I haven't seen them kind of go above and beyond in terms of like, we're throwing down, you know, $2 million on this thing and we're not, it's, we don't care if it's profitable. I do see people being cautious and sort of, you know, testing the waters. And I think that's always, that's always smart, but it's true. People want the information served to them, you know, in this day and age of, you know, Google was great because now I can go and I can look for anything, but I'm also more pressed for time than ever. And I kind of need you to, to tell me what it is that I'm supposed to be looking at. I'll go find some other things, but you got to kind of serve it up for me. And I think email and newsletters and the inbox has become a very important tool for people. Um, it gets very cluttered, which is challenging. I mean, I know even myself personally, I I open up my inbox and I delete, you know, 90 percent of what's in there. But that doesn't mean I won't go another day and check it. I think speaking of newsletters, you know, we've been looking at our own newsletter strategy. And so we were looking at what some other publishers were doing. So we're looking at The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times. And you can subscribe to I think it's 55 individual newsletters from The Wall Street Journal what? and 61 from the times. So we're looking at that. We were kind of like, um, so like the 11 we have, we could probably, you know, add a couple more. Um, But I think it just goes to show you these specialty communications um, are really what people are are seeking and they want.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, what's appealing to me about that model is it, it kind of goes back to journalism. I mean, I've done it, you know, create a newsletter based on what we've already written. It's just a curated Mm -hmm. regurgitation of what we've written. They're writing these from scratch. Yes. You know, with no other purpose in mind. They're curating other sources, but they're also adding their own content to it. And they have staffs of people to do it.
1: Oh, sure.
0: And they are also branching out into other areas. And you can, if I'm not into retail, I don't have to read their retail one if I'm not Mm -hmm. into Finance, I don't have to read their finance one and and so on. But it's interesting to me, and I wonder what the future holds for it. Do you just keep stamping these out? Do you just keep building your base? Now what?
2: Yeah, I, I can't imagine there won't be some sort of blowback. You know, it's kind of like the direct mail of the day, right? Like mail was fantastic. And then we all, then it was like, ooh, junk mail. You know, and then there was, okay, we don't want to do mail. And now, thanks to all these D2C brands, it's having a huge resurgence. Like, no, nah, direct mail. <laughs> so, you know, it's these ebb and flow of of how do we really reach people. I think newsletters are having a moment. Um, will it last forever? I doubt it. There will be some sort of a blowback as well. But at the same time, it's a great way to exercise your curatorial voice. What do we think is important? What is the purpose of each newsletter? It also allows you to learn a lot about your audience in terms of what they're subscribing to, how often they're opening it. So the data that comes behind that is amazing, you know, that you're not getting in a lot of other channels. I can send them an envelope and maybe they'll use the code that I stuck in the mailer, but I don't know if they opened it and liked it and then it just sat on their table. I don't know if they accidentally threw it away, but from a digital standpoint, I can tell. I can tell what's happening. And that's information that's good to bring back internally and to hopefully act upon, which is a, which is another challenge <laughs> in you know, publishing.
0: Yeah. The, I mean, I was going to ask about in past years, we talked about engagement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stop focusing on these page views and visits and unique page views, all these kind of top line KPIs. And let's look at how engaged people are, how loyal the audience is, how do they interact with us. Um, but that's really hard to do. I mm-hmm. mean, as a as a reader, I have so many choices. Mm-hmm. I'm loyal to a handful of brands, media brands, mm-hmm. but I pro, I'm promiscuous in you know finding the information right. that I want. And so, have we have we tossed aside engagement as a metric, or is it still a thing?
2: we talk a lot about it i think i think edit always wants to from a and when i speak about edit i'm speaking specifically of you know the editorial staff at that sure. age i think you know edit always it's a source of pride for them like of course they want people like reading their stuff and sticking around so i think engagement is important to them as feedback, you know, are we writing the right things? You know, are people sticking around to read more? What are they really interested in? So that's an important metric for them, I think, in terms of creating the content. It's not something that we're currently selling against, right? So, you know, most of our advertisers still want scale, reach, specific targeting, you know, things like that. So I think until as a business we sort of figure out, like, well, how would you even s- Sell against that engagement? What's the right thing for an ad age like object to do? It's not something that we're currently doing. So, but at the same time, understand that it's important editorially um, for them to understand what that metric is. But from a business side, I think we still have some work to do to figure out. Is, is that something we even want to monetize? And unclear. Unclear yet. TBD, stay tuned.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> what's interesting is you you came from the agency side, mm-hmm. right? And so I think back at the dawn of digital publishing, you know, we gave the power back to the advertiser. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, we, we we used to joke around when, when we printed magazines about our circulation. And um, we wouldn't – internally, we wouldn't call it readership. We would call it receivership. <laughs> Because we don't know if anybody read. They received it, right? Um,
2: (laughs) You're like, we want to be specific. (laughs)
0: But, um, you know, when when we started publishing on the web, they had metrics that they could ask us for and demand before they advertised. And that gave the power to the advertiser and that drove CPMs down Mm -hmm. um, and caused all sorts of brands to start life with the notion of, all we need to do is get eyeballs no matter the cost, right? right? And and as a journalist, that was um, – those were sad days, you know, mm-hmm. because every boss that came in wanted to just drive up those eyeballs because that was what was driving CPMs. And meanwhile, CPMs were going down, down, down. It was a commodity. Then we had programmatic advertising, which drove it down even more.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Where are we with all of that today?
2: I think a lot of – media brands obviously are working at scale but i would say it's actually shifted a little bit as well as they figure out for the paywall model it's like it's hard to scale a paywall it just it just is you know i think the times has had incredible success and i'm like super jealous of what they're doing they are just an incredibly is. smart Group of people, and I really love what's happening for them. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, so somehow they've managed to, to scale while they're doing all of these other things as but well. They didn't.
0: They didn't ever chase the.
2: They never chased it. They yet. never
0: chased it. They never compromised their content.
2: Correct. You know, and
0: you know, they never played the games. You Correct. know, I'm sure they had an SEO team. I'm sure that they looked at yep. all of that stuff and that they they imbued their content with the, mm-hmm. those. Those kinds of um, sentiments, but at the core of it, they just said, we're just going to keep doing great journalism and therefore we should charge for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And people did. I mean, it was a struggle. They had rocky times, right? Um, But now their subscriptions are going up and- they're going to hit, great. like, 10
2: million digital subscribers, I think they said, by 2020. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's great. But I also think they were never just t- chase. if all you want is digital ad revenue, then, yeah. Like, all you're going to do it's, – it's clickbait, basically. If yeah. all you want is is eyeballs, you're going to write those headlines. You're going to be like, cutest puppy monkey ever. You know, watch them, like, be, be best friends. And, like, that's going to be – but then there was also this proliferation of sites – that are just set up to do that. They're just set up to get clicks. So, you know, for a brand like AdAge, like, especially, like, scale's not our game. Like, we're never, nor are we interested in, you'll never hear us say, like, well, what we really want to do is quadruple our our audience. I think what we want is to make sure the people who are in our fold are extremely well-informed and and perceive the value of the relationship. So, you know, where we have more success are things like custom content. I mean, digital revenue, ad revenue is still important, just pure, like, I want eyeballs on my brand. But what we're also trying to do is, you know, we're a publication about advertising, media, and marketing that gets read by advertising, media, and marketing professionals. Like, you can't, you can't, communicate to them, like, badly. (laughs) You can't be like,
1: you you know, you (laughs) you can't
2: trick their game. You gotta be like, here's this horrible photo and this weird headline and that's some, you know, content that may or may not be engaging, you know. We're really trying to partner with people to help them understand, like, it's very meta. Like you are the audience and the advertiser at the same time, you know, what would you find helpful to you? So I think that's where we find more success. I think I've seen certainly some people going the more clickbaity route, but you know, we're, we're the same. Like we're not here to be like so-and-so just launched the cutest campaign ever. You know, we're here to dissect and to offer a point of view and to remind you, you know, Addy just watching you. (laughs) <laughs> in a not scary way, but we're not here to congratulate. Or, I mean, we are in a, in a sense of we want to we want to recognize people who are doing it well. But we're not not for the sake of a headline that's going to generate a lot of clicks. Uh, that that would be a disservice. And I think a lot of what the Times will do is the same thing. They're just this is who we are, and there's a real integrity to that. That I think there's some real lessons learned in there, and they've really been a huge beacon, I think, and a. I think the industry is like does a lot of fist pumps, you know, to be like, all right, you go times. And I think we're all really happy for them, which is nice to see.
0: Yeah. As long as big brands like that do well, the rest of us have hope. Yeah. Actually, I was looking up some, uh, some gift guides last night. So I was it's looking-
2: hard to shop, guys. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. So I was looking at one on a—I will not name them, but I will say it was a Condé Nast publication. Mm-hmm. And, man, the ads— that pop up and pop in and that interrupt my scroll and I make know. me re-scroll. Gosh, I thought by now we would have fixed that. You know, it's the sort of it's why I use ad blockers. I as a as a media person, I hate that I use ad blockers
2: because
0: mm-hmm. I it just goes against my yep. core beliefs.
2: Shame on you.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, well, I whitelist a lot of sites. I've whitelisted adage. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks
2: right. so um, much. <laughs>
0: I can't believe that's still a thing, you know, like yeah. that that we're still in an age where advertising, instead of fixing it with some other solutions, and I have many, but that we just say, well, let's just throw more ads on here and make them yeah. even more annoying so you can't avoid them.
2: I bet that part of that is because the Conde used to sell it or Conde sells at scale, right? Like Conde sells it like, yeah, we got a lot of eyeballs. And as publications suffer and lose audience and lose whatever you still have to deliver the impression so it's like how can you if we wedge an ad in here I bet they don't like it either. Um, and so I think it's it's a crossroads of like well how do we how do we find solutions um you know and I, we have the conversation all the time like well we don't want to put another ad in there like okay so what else what else can we do because it's ultimately not a good user experience so
0: yeah I, mean, I like to compare it to how my dad used to give me haircuts. He doesn't listen, so I can say this. Um, You know, he would cut and he would realize that he'd gone too far on one side, so he'd cut the other, realize he'd gone too far on that (laughs) side, and then go back to—and all of a sudden, there was no hair left. And it's sort of like, well, CPMs are down, so we need to add a new space for ads. Yeah. And then— those costs are, are down or that revenue's down. So we had another
2: Yeah, spot. I'd love to see the bounce rates, right? Like, yeah. you're, like you're like, what's so, uh, what's uh, so, sticking around? <laughs> well, one idea,
0: one idea I, I had, and I, I used to run a publication that had deep, deep, deep content mm-hmm. and had huge readership, and but we were run by a company that saw success in some of these SEO tactics and just mm-hmm. adding more ads onto pages on some of their other properties. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to do it to ours. And so we saw ad blocker rates go from minuscule to 30, 40%. So I said, well, what if we have such a loyal audience and we had a huge community as part of that audience. I said, what amount of money would we have to charge for an ad-free experience? Mm -hmm. And I said, what if we charged $5 and somebody on the ad team did the math and we would have actually made money Mm-hmm. By turning off, if everybody was willing to pay a dollar a month, we would have made a killing, mm-hmm. right? And turned off ads for those people. We had the technology. So it's baffling to me why, for high value content, I can see it for low value content, but for high value content, why people wouldn't go to extra lengths to provide ad free experiences.
2: That's such a good question. I think actually we're learning a lot from the streaming services. I think um, that's been sort of really fertile ground to look and see what the Netflixes of the world and the Hulus of the world are doing. I think publishing and has a lot to learn from them. You know, I think at, you know, Hulu's upfront um, this year, a lot of what they were talking about was, you know, the ad experience for advertisers and, you know, how you can create something a little different. They've been very good at inventing new ways for advertisers to still be part of the experience, but to like not annoy the crap out of the people watching their content. Because for them, like they're built out of this thing of like – if you know this is a subscription service and it's nine ninety nine and people are going to turn it off and they're going to go watch something else, and I think there's a greater sense of I think they get that sense of urgency more probably because they're built on top. They're built in a, in a newer time, whereas <laughs> legacy publishers are like us, and I think it's just it's hard to change those models. You know, if the technology is in place. Great. But if it's not, how do you prioritize that over anything else? Like, well, I'm trying to get a faster load time for my mobile site. You know, how how do you prioritize that over anything else when you're also just trying to focus on the reader? So I think OTT is an interesting space to watch um, and borrow from likely yeah. for those ad experiences and we've and the never game. even thought about that we've never even thought about like, turn it off but also our audience is in advertising so they kind of love it at the same time yeah. like of course it's part of the experience i think they accept it a little bit more <laughs> yeah. maybe they even see their own work when they're looking yeah, at the yeah. things so, no i want to like, see more ads you know, i want to see are, my ad
0: pop up there
2: <laughs> we are lucky in the sense of like you know our audience like they're pretty into it they're yeah. pretty into it which is why you have to make it good.
0: Yeah. The other thing I was wondering about is um, you mentioned it earlier affiliate revenue commerce Mm -hmm. sort of plays And you know we we were talking about the New York Times they bought the wire cutter
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: I don't know if this is true but somebody who was in a position to know told me that there was a time before the New York Times bought them that 100% of their revenue came from affiliate links.
2: Really? Dang.
0: Which would be pretty amazing.
2: That is amazing.
0: Yeah. So no advertising. Just That's
2: some good curating of Well, I mean they're uh, all about yeah.
0: they're they're all about choosing products, right? Mm-hmm. So you can see how that model yeah. fits them. Has that died down or is that still kind of what a lot of people are striving for to diversify revenue?
2: I think we'll see more of it. I think when you when you hear people like Jessica Pels of of Cosmopolitan talk e-commerce is a huge has a, a huge part of what they're doing and has a big role in what they'll be doing in the future. I think when you then they were talking about how the strategist has their first campaign launching for specifically that. And I think Cosmo is bringing on their first shopping editor. I wanted to say that they they talked about so um as you gain more trust from your readers right so your so the shift is now like we're not doing these industry wide pivots anymore we're doubling down on what we do people trust our voice they trust who we are as you're doubling down on that you start to realize as i'm doubling down on this people don't really believe the things that i say right and so it is very tempting to be like when i when i say this is the right thing to buy and they buy it like how that is an incredible opportunity to to monetize that so i think we will likely see more of it over the coming years Um, for Ad Age specifically you know it's something we've always talked about you know like over the water cooler like for five minutes in a taxi like wouldn't that be fun because we also have such a huge audience of creative humans who love to collect and curate cool things Mm. but it's not quite right for us now it doesn't feel authentic to who we are yet so you know we'll see
1: Hey, Fritz, sorry to interrupt this podcast episode, but we have a word from one of your favorite sponsors, Hint.
0: Yes, if you don't know about Hint yet, and who wouldn't by now, their brand is all about making the everyday more enjoyable. It started when Kara Golden, Hint's founder, needed a way to drink more water. But she wanted flavor without the sugar and sweetener that come in most drinks, so she created Hint Water. It has just a hint of flavor from real fruit essences without any of those added sugars or sweeteners. Everyone at the GrowWire office is a big fan of Hint Waters. I, in particular, like the snowball flavor.
1: Nope. Nope. No snowball flavor. That's not a flavor. Are you sure? Can Pop- we
0: just make a slushy out of it?
1: You could probably freeze the water and turn it into your favorite like what are those things called flavored ice you know that you can get in like Hawaii and shaved ice uh, yeah shaved ice you could probably do that that would be there really you good do go,
0: Care Golden a new product idea for Hint
1: <laughs> one, but one of their actual flavors I don't know like pineapple or pineapple. Pineapple. blackberry or mm. cherry those seem exotic yeah okay yeah
0: why don't you try them out for yourself go to hint.co slash welcome to get 30% off your first purchase You know, so we've we've got a lot of different technology. When Vox mm-hmm. started out, they started out. We're going to create a brand new publishing platform. They wrote from scratch their own publishing platform. Um, you have companies, one of the companies I was at, created their own commerce platform, you know, so as not to just give all the money away to Amazon and mm-hmm. the rest of them. Programmatic ads, people have created their own platforms for that, for better or worse, mm-hmm. as well. But. Even though some of the stuff you're just talking about with yep. with Cosmopolitan, they, I mean, they have to be able to understand those little nuances, and mm-hmm. to do that requires technology. So th- that person put it like, we're becoming technology companies, yeah. not media companies. Would you go so far, and, and is that the next wave?
2: I think for brands like the Washington Post, absolutely. Jared is, you know, we he's a favorite of our editors just because I think he's just a very outspoken, candid guy and he knows a lot and he is really interesting and you know the Washington Post obviously is is backed by has funds available to them to innovate and to build technology and and to do these things so and
0: also another beacon because they're making money again
2: They are making money again and you're like yay yeah. that's so great um so I think they absolutely will pivot to technology I think um it's always interesting to me any any company that really has a tremendous amount of user data is ultimately a data company, right? So, if if so, for example, we've even spoken to brands. Um, I want to say it was Spotify or something. Talking to an unnamed executive of Spotify, he's like, "Yes, we love music, but ultimately, we are a data company um, um, because you are understanding so much about user behavior." So, I think with publishers, if they are if they are platform experts, if they are um, content experts in the intersection of that. I think the post will lead the way. I think everyone has eyes on what they will do because I think ultimately they also are a friend to the entire industry. I think they are trying to make the industry all better. I think a lot of publishers got, can be really burned by platforms and um, trying to get our content out there and trying to reach our audiences and trying to make sure people are informed. And it's a constant challenge. So if the post can come through with technologies that allow us to do our job is better, and to disseminate information in a better, more trusted way, that's great for everyone.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I think and Vo- I haven't followed what Vox has done with its platform, mm-hmm. but when it launched, I mean, what it started to create was beautiful user experiences, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, as a journalist, warms my heart. If yes. you're trying to create these places where people like to go and you're mm-hmm. doing it in unique ways, and some ways, courts do the same thing. Um, That can be pretty exciting. I want to talk a little bit, And was talking a little bit about ad age. You Mm -hmm. guys have been around for a long time. I
2: know. Next year's our 90th. We were just talking about it. Somebody was like, what are we doing for our 90th anniversary? And I was like, stuff, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Next year, we're turning 90. So yeah, 90 years.
0: So even before the Mad Men... Days of-
2: Absolutely. Ad Age was actually invented uh, at the start of the Great Depression. Um, G.D. Crane, you know, were owned by Crane Communications, which is a family owned publishing company. So he uh, I think there was maybe one other advertising publication at the time. And he really doubled down and was like, you know, it's, it's the Great Depression. But, you know, we still have a responsibility to cover what people are doing. And at the time, there was like no regulation over advertising. There was nobody watching it. It was just you know oh here's this product and it works and here's another thing and you know take it there was no there was no advertising as a as something to observe and comment on so um, but yeah so 90 years ago they they kicked it off
0: <laughs> and you've and you've been here for three years three years but mm-hmm. as an advertising person you've watched
2: it for many years I yes yes correct
0: what do you what would you say are some of the bellwether changes in the past in at least five years ten years or while you've been here
2: for advertising specifically
0: well for ad, for ad age as a as a publication
2: for ad age as a publication we are constantly just trying to reinvent ourselves in terms of so there's there's two things always at play number 1 we are a 90-year-old media brand, and there is a huge legacy behind that. And we take our role in the industry very, very seriously. One of the things I think I was surprised most about when I joined AdAge, I was like, everyone here is just so earnest, which I love because, you know, you want to work with good people at the end of the day, and you want to work with people who take their jobs seriously and, um, you know, but are lighthearted as well. So, that was really important to me. I was like, man, these these people don't mess around. Like they're, <laughs> they're really serious about what what they do. But at the same time, you can't just be like, I'm a dinosaur. You know, you have to stay fresh. Again, it's a lot of pressure to, to be fresh and to be interesting for people who do this every day for a living. So part of what we seen, one of the first things we did when I came in is we decided we need to rebrand. And rebranding as much as everyone's kind of like, oh, yeah, the new logo, you know, but it was a necessary exercise into resetting who we were, not just externally to our audience and reminding them that, you know, we're here and we we work to have a fresh and persistent take on the industry, but also internally um, to realign ourselves and to remind ourselves what we're committed to doing every day. So that has kind of been our core thing. And then as we're having the conversation, it's very much about what technologies do we need to implement? What are our priorities? Um, you know, we are a smaller organization. Obviously, like we are not the size of the times, shockingly. We are, you know. Few are. Of, you know, 50-person, 60-person organization. Um, so when we have to decide very carefully where our investments go – Um, and, you know, just stay committed to that. So it's been these constant conversations of, you know, our audience data, our technology platforms, you know, what do we see in those, um, but also staying committed to delivering what we do best and, you know, making sure our editorial team is empowered as much as we can empower them every single day to go out there and do what they do. Um, so it's... It's less about, like, what do we do with this website? (laughs) More about, like, it's data. Honestly, it's a data conversation and a very short answer, and I'm sure you see that too. There's just a proliferation of a need for data and a need to capitalize on that data and a need to monetize that data and a need to get more of that data, Um, and we're constantly working towards solutions to make that a reality for us, Um, but to make sure we're doing it smartly Um, there's, I mean, we get, you know, I'm sure you do the same as like 50 emails every day from vendors being like, can I come talk to you about how to optimize your (laughs) email program? And you're like, okay. Um, and it's hard to wade through all of that and figure out what the right solution for your business is.
0: I'm curious too about your social media strategy. I was listening to Mm -hmm. a podcast where the editor in chief of, I think it was Eater came Mm -hmm. on and was talking about, what I loved about it was they were taught, she was talking about Um, social media as a platform unto itself. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who's been in media for a long time and has had to learn social media, I mean, I was there at the beginning, but, you know, I always thought of it as an amplification platform Mm -hmm. as rather than more eyeballs on my content. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about it as if we're going to launch new things on social media, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting. And Maybe maybe I'm in the dark ages and that's what everybody's doing, but I don't I don't see it. How how have you guys really approached social media?
2: Um, I'd say we were probably like a little bit closer to where you're at, you know, up until like a year or so ago, where you know social media was very much an amplification tool. Exactly what you're saying. Like we're writing amazing stuff, you know, let's put it on social media, and also understanding our audience, um, you know, uses social media as a newsfeed. So, you know, they're scrolling through and, you know, you're doing your thing. And so how can you just make sure you're you're part of that experience? Um, You know, maybe they're checking five sites a day or they've decided to follow X people. And so how can you make sure you're showing up in that experience? Um, Now we're finding as we're learning about our audience and the different ways that they grow. So, for example, like. LinkedIn is our by far our fastest growing social media channel. It is insane to me how many new followers we have on LinkedIn every month. So then you have to stop back and step back and ask yourself, what are we doing for these people on LinkedIn? Are they just following us because like they like it when we pop up in their new feed news feed with a story, or is there something else we can be giving them there? And I think we've really started to kind of. Un um to use to use a terrible industry cliche, like unpack what that really means for for us. Um, and then working with edit to as the last thing I want to do as the associate publisher or the marketing person be like, you know, it's great guys, it's like a six second video on with you guys you know doing whatever. So we again, we want to make sure that they're empowered for their voices to come to life in a way that's that's true for them. so, that's something we've been seeing a lot of lately. We were literally just having the conversation the other day, like, how do we, what do we want to do about this in, in 2020? And there's a lot of interesting ideas on the table. But um, but yeah, Instagram also is a big one that's been growing for us. And I think it's been so interesting to see how publishers are using Instagram. You know, you think like, oh, Instagram, I want to look at my pretty pictures. But people are consistently using it to read and to digest. And it's not just a shopping platform. And um, a blogger platform. It's it's a real tool for publishers. I mean, there's to get their good, there's so there.
0: much fun. St- like the, there's that whole Trader Joe's thing that's going on now. Mm-hmm. The Trader Joe's influencer I thing. Love Trader Joe's. Like, um, Who doesn't love Trader right, Joe's? Right. But but they're like they've started. I don't know. Maybe somebody started it. Maybe they started it. But like there's it. It's bec- Instagram is becoming a place where you can launch these. Yeah. Fun things. And sometimes they fizzle out and sometimes I they go forever. You,
2: they got me. Instagram has got me. Like I buy more stuff off of Instagram mm-hmm. than like, eh, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what is doing. But I'm like, yeah, I will totally buy that. Thank you. I mean, they've made so much money off me personally um, <laughs> because I think what they do, what advertising has been missing a little bit, which I think is the trouble we got into with the digital game we all played about like top banners targeting, more banners, retargeting. And you're like, I yes, I did look at that rug and I decided I hated it. So I didn't buy it. So I don't know why you're showing it to me again on Facebook. But what Instagram has done a really great job of is revisiting the idea of discovery. Like as a consumer, I want to discover things that are related to other things. Like, yes, I love travel, but that probably also means I like books or just because I looked at a black boot, maybe I like other types of things. And I think Instagram is really the only platform I've seen that still gives that that lens to the shopping experience, which is like a browsing, window shopping-y kind of experience, but in a highly sophisticated and targeted way where you're like, you don't know me, Instagram. Okay, maybe you do. <laughs> and yes, fine. I'll, I'll buy it again. Click, click, um, click, yeah. But I think they've done excellent work in making sure that you still feel like you have some power over the shopping experience and you're not just being advertised to. Um, that's been – I like that part. About it a lot.
0: Last question. Mm-hmm. I am a 22 year old coming out of college <laughs> as a journalism <laughs> major or English major. I want to become Congratulations. a journalist. Um, or I'm a 25 year old living at home with mom and dad and I'm ready now to go out in the world and I have decided I want to be in media. What What do you tell me?
2: I think media is a very interesting space. I think Here's what I love about media and here's what I love specifically about journalists if, if people want to go be a journalist. So I never – before I joined AdAge, I just was not familiar with the publishing world. I mean I got here in the first six months. I was like, what is everyone talking about? <laughs> You're saying words and I don't know what they mean. Um so publishing was really hard for me to wrap my arms around. And I had never worked around journalists for sure before. You know, I worked around creative people, obviously. I was a copywriter. I mean, I was like, I write words too, guys. We're like the same. <laughs> but there is something about that, which they would look at me with their, you know, journalist poker faces and be like, we will allow you to stay here for one more moment. And then you must walk away. I'm just kidding. They're all very lovely. But journalists to me, it is such a privilege to be able to watch them do their job every day because they do it with such integrity. And it is so uplifting to see that and so inspiring to see that like they do not waver. They do not. They are committed to telling the story that they want to tell. And I think, you know, to steal from your lovely producers conversation that we were having earlier today about the ability to tell a story and the ability to be able to express yourself In words or video or podcast or whatever it is, is a real talent and a real skill. So if you're getting into journalism, I'm always a big fan of like major in something that you're going to learn from. Like just because you major in business doesn't mean you're going to work in business. I was a sociology major for crying out loud, which is like the most amazing corollary to advertising because it's about understanding behavior on a macro level, which if that's not advertising, I don't don't know what is. Um, So I think the media industry will Thrive. It will survive and it will ultimately thrive because at the end of the day, it's still about content, which is anything, which can be anything. So you have the opportunity to invent something new, to tell a story in a new way, to reach audiences a new way. And I still think <laughs> – as dire as the news is sometime – I still think there's a tremendous um, – amount of opportunity for it to live. And I think even given sort of the current cultural tensions around it, I think what it has done is that tension has allowed new things to bloom out of that. Um, So I definitely feel like it's still a worthwhile place to explore.
0: It's good to hear. Thank you for joining (laughs) me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's really interesting stuff on the current state of publishing, advertising, and media, and what to look out for in the future. This world is changing so rapidly. Um, thank you so much to Heidi Waldusky from Ad Age for joining us on this episode of the Grow Wire podcast. I also want to thank our editors over at Lampstand as well as our producer, you, Kendall Fisher.
1: Why, thank you, thank you very much,
0: <laughs> and of course, all you listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe.
1: You just listened to the Grow Wire podcast with host Fritz Nelson. Make sure to keep tuning in for more episodes full of tips, tools, stories, and strategies to help take your personal and professional growth to the next level. Until next time.